the impudence, the audacity, the unmitigated gall of those knuckleheads of liberty podcasters daring to voice opinions outside the mainstream of accepted thought. Listen, if you dare, it's angry, it's funny, it's even sometimes sad, but it's always based on freedom and justice, as you will see. Here's our host, Jason McPhee. Welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty. We are coming at you on February 6, 2023. Um, so it's uh, a little bit of a departure for us. We have a special guest today here. Um, he is Thomas Green, the uh, uh, Green County attorney in Iowa. Uh, and uh, he's going to be here to talk with us on a show that's really focused on Iowa. Uh, so we can uh, hear about some of the issues of liberty and, and government going on in Iowa. Uh, so before we get into that, let me introduce you to our panel. In our upper left-hand corner, we have Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in Liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. In our upper right-hand corner, we have our screaming eagle of freedom, Tim Everett. He is a pilot in the state of California. In uh, our lower left-hand corner, we have Dr. Thomas Lane. He is the, uh, as I said before, the Green County attorney in Iowa, which is kind of like a district attorney. And we recently interviewed Thomas. So if you want to really hear about his you know uh, uh, yeah, uh getting elected as a libertarian in office you can go check that episode out and find out more about thomas uh in by the way uh, james can you bring up the visual too i just wanted to bring up thomas's web page too so uh, there's a picture of thomas there and you can check him out more there and on our last show uh so anyways we're going to talk about iowa on this show um and so uh, as usual i want to bring up the uh Cato map so we can kind of see how liberty is playing out in Iowa. Uh, this is a map that kind of shows how the different states relate to one each other. The gold ones are sort of the ones that uh, uh, that um, Cato is giving uh, pretty significantly high ratings to for the most part, I think. So you can see like uh, New Hampshire here is is number one. Uh, but uh, Iowa is kind of in the middle of the pack. But it's interesting because um, even though it's sort of in the middle of the pack is they disaggregate their rating. Um, they think they're doing absolutely great on on regulatory freedom um, and uh, personal freedom is doing pretty well there too. Uh, the issue is just uh, that there happens to be a lot of spending going on and some of that may be because it's uh, um, uh, kind of a one-party rule that seems to be kind of the opposite of what we're having here in California where it's all Democrats. There it sounds like it's pretty much all Republicans and Thomas <laughs> as an elected libertarian. <laughs> so uh, and uh, just to, to show you uh, how this sort of plays out on uh, uh, a few of the websites. It looks like they, they have uh, maybe one Democrat in state office. And uh, as far as for the um, uh, federal uh, positions here, the, the two senators are Republicans and all four of the representatives are also Republicans. So definitely it's a solid red state. Um, so that being said, um, you know, Thomas, how is Liberty doing uh, in, in your experience in Iowa? Not well. Uh, and I, 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 you know, if you look at Cato's data through time, Iowa has fallen from the 10th freest state to the 29th uh, oh. since the year 2000. Uh, and I think your point is well taken when you compare California with Iowa. It really reveals that 
there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two major parties in everything that matters. Uh, that when they gain control of a state government, they concentrate power and they grow government. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, uh, they do the same thing. One thing I will jump in on on that, though, is that uh, Cato, I think, ranks California at 48. So <laughs> I think from personal experience, you definitely say we'd be, you know, even though we'd much rather see the Liberty take a, a shot. But, you know, hey, I was looking pretty good to us. <laughs> yeah, God, what are the two states? I have to look at that. What are the two states worse than California? My goodness. I, you know, I believe it is. I think it's New York and Illinois. Is it not? I believe New, is New York not? is fifty, and uh, I think Hawaii uh, is forty-nine. And oh, so, oh, oh, I, okay, okay. I, oh, I think God. that Hawaii maybe it, I haven't looked into it specifically, but it might have to do with you know the fact I think they have uh, what is it um, uh, single-payer health care there and some other things like that. So I, I'm mm -hmm. not sure about all the issues there, but it's yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. But uh, sorry, Thomas. Uh, yeah, we'll get back to you on this. So. Sure. No, of course. And, and, and we had a chance to discuss this once already, but just as an example, our legislature just enacted new school education legislation that's going to cost taxpayers more than $250 million a year uh, to uh, provide vouchers for parents to send their kids to private schools. Uh, and, and that's just a great example of how a, a Republican administration, a Republican controlled legislature doesn't have any problem growing government and, and, increasing cost to taxpayers yeah you, you know about, uh, oh sorry I, I just wanted to bring up from the last one real quick and then you jump in uh you had made a, a point on the critique in the last show uh that the you know kind of an interesting insight that we, we haven't really thought because we're very pro-choice generally on this show but uh, you made a very interesting point that um when uh government sets a amount of money that they're putting out there it does create a distortion as far as you know how much a, a private school then will charge because it might yeah. be less but if they know they're getting a certain amount then wow just like with the uh well we see this in college uh funding as well yeah. uh, when they know that students are getting a certain amount from the federal government boom they spend it you know they <laughs> they yeah, figure course, out a way yeah. to bring those costs up so that yeah. was a really interesting insight for the k-12 through that you were bringing up there um, yeah, no, you know, there are very rare circumstances. There are some, I would argue there are some, but they're few and far between when a government agency can do something better than the market can do it. But in the true. vast majority of situations, market forces will produce a better outcome than any sort of centralized regulatory authority. And education is one of those, those areas. And, and as I said in the last show, my wife and I are exploring a private school for our daughter Currently, tuition there is only $4,000, $4,500 a year in that range. The new legislation uh, will allow parents to pay up to $7,500, roughly, uh, toward tuition and have that covered by the state. So why would this private school not increase its tuition to $7,500? Uh, because there's a guaranteed check from the state of Iowa that distorts the market. It frees that private school from market forces. And that's $3,000 in government spending, the difference between the new tuition and the old tuition, that's just wasted government money uh, that's being taken from the people of Iowa. Yeah. 
So, Tom, yeah. Thomas, I can, you know, I can understand your your market distortion arguments. I, I'm I'm in full compliance with that. But in 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 your world, in the I guess the libertarian world or whatever it is you want to call it, what would you have done about the situation of education? I mean, education, public education, K through twelve in particular, is really a national disgrace. We cannot we cannot deny that. And I'm not advocating for the federal government to get involved with that. That's a that's the last thing on, on my list of things to do to correct a very obvious problem. But what would you have done that would be different or or how would you have prevent some of these market distortions that we are about to see in Iowa and then there are other places kind of following suit in, in similar type uh, school choice programs, shall we say? I would say get government out of it. I believe in public schools, but they should be under local control. The degree to which our federal government and our state government interferes in public education at the local level is astounding to me. Our state legislature, so in addition to the school choice, they're also looking at legislation to limit what books are in our school libraries. They want to interfere with the curricula at the K through 12 level. These are legislators who are inserting themselves into our local public schools. Give authority back to local school boards. That's how parents and local people are in control. Uh, it, you know, we are going to lose the capacity for self-government if it doesn't exist at the local level. Uh, here in, in, in Greene County, our county treasurer four years ago won election by one vote. She beat the incumbent by one vote. One voter made or changed the outcome of that election. That's not possible at the state level. That's not possible at the federal level. There's actual meaningful control and accountability at the local level. Give public schools back to local school boards, local parents, and get government out of it. We don't, I don't want legislators determining what books are in my school library. That's just preposterous. But, 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 but just, just, just to be clear here, though, I mean, when you say getting government out of it, even the, the public the public schools, as it is presently um, constructed, you would want the government out of that too, I would imagine, is what you're saying. I want federal government out of it completely. I think that's beyond the constitutional authority of the federal government to have any role in public education. Constitutionally and legally, there is a role for each state legislature to set up its own public school system. Uh, and I think I really believe in the laboratory of the states and you can have experimentation in different states and we'll see what works and what doesn't work. Philosophically, I think you only have meaningful democracy at the local level. Representation is an absolute myth. The, the idea that there's 100 senators in Congress who are in any meaningful sense representative of the people of the, of the United States is preposterous. I mean, it, it, it's it's. Uh, just a, a total myth, uh, and yet we've given them so much authority to dictate to the country uh, in, in areas of legislation that should really be decided at the state and local level. You know, one, one of the things I was thinking, maybe there's a happy compromise there in the um, 
you know, school choice, if, if somehow they incentivize parents, maybe with some kind of savings accounts or something where maybe some of the money can be saved toward college, if they don't spend it all, then maybe yeah. that would put some price pressure back into the marketplace. Maybe there's some tinkering that could be done, but, you know, speaking of, I, I did want to move on to the next topic though, um, because when we talk about distortions and it maybe sort of what's driving a lot of, of potential distortions in uh, Iowa, and that's ethanol. I mean, you can't seem to get around that, that it is the largest producer by far of ethanol in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see this uh, chart here from uh, Statista, and they're showing essentially that the capacity in millions of gallons, it's uh, literally twice as much as the next closest state, Nebraska. Um, so it's it's producing a huge share of the country's uh, ethanol. And of course, a lot of these uh, this ethanol production, I guess, uh, it, it seems to be it's ramping up. Here's an article that shows that, uh, you know, they believe they're setting new records in 2021 production. But a lot of this is driven by policy at the federal level, which is to say that, hey, you've got to put X amount of ethanol in the, the gasoline out there. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to bring up the visual here that's being a little slow for me. Uh, yeah, so uh, this is the uh, U.S. Ener uh, Department of Energy uh, and Alternative Fuels Data Center. And a lot of that, it, it, this just shows a laundry list of different rules and regulations that they have that impact, uh, you know, ethanol out there being produced and uh, one specifically is the renewable fuel standard and they're, they're requiring that's like 36 billion uh, gallons of renewable fuel have to be blended in uh, to our our fuel supply so uh, you know this is just one aspect of it there's some other issues too with uh, you know uh, carbon capture at these places and wanting to put uh, pipelines uh, through places and some of the uh, impacts on um, uh, oh, I, I can't remember what that's called uh, when uh, uh, they try and grab the property from the state. Eminent uh, domain. Uh, eminent eminent domain. domain. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there, there's other issues going on like that. So uh, Thomas, uh, tell us a little bit about how ethanol is impacting uh, the state of Iowa. What's that distortion like? Yeah, it's, it's a great distortion. And it's both at the federal level and the state level. Uh, for And again, this is another example of how Republicans are no different than Democrats in using the instrumentalities of government uh, to interfere in the marketplace and to diminish liberty. Uh, in uh, 2021, our Republican legislature enacted and our Republican governor signed uh, House File 2128, which requires gas stations to sell uh, E15 gasoline, gasoline with 15% ethanol blended in beginning in 2026. So our, our Republican government is forcing private business owners to sell a product, whether they want to or not. Uh, hey James, and, maybe you could bring up the visual again real quick while Thomas is talking here. So because we do have some slides on that. Uh, this, uh, I believe, talks about that law where yeah. they're requiring E15 to be sold. Uh, and just give uh, people a little bit of background on gasoline. So generally, the gasoline in the country is 10% ethanol. And it's largely because of these laws that are forcing that. And there's a little bit of a push in some places to make it E15 or in some cases E85. Um, but there's a lot of technical issues with vehicles themselves on, on adopting that. But anyway, sorry, go ahead, Thomas. Yeah, and I'm not opposed to E15 or E85 if consumers want it, but let the market determine that. And don't force private business owners to sell a product that may not be profitable for them. 
Uh, and then because there's this recognition that a lot of our private, you know, locally owned gas stations can't afford to replace their underground tanks and to replace their pumps, there's grant money, you know, millions of dollars in grant money every year paid for by taxpayers to help these private businesses uh, update their equipment. Uh, and so it's a huge cost to taxpayers. Uh, for uh, a technology that may be fleeting, who knows how long, you know, ethanol powered vehicles are going to be a thing. Uh, and it's clearly not something the market could in independently support. And then you add in the, these federal tax credits uh, where the federal government is uh, giving, proposing to give out billions of dollars in tax credits uh, for ethanol plants that reduce their carbon uh, footprint uh, by building these pipelines that will uh, liquefy carbon dioxide emissions. We're going to pipe those liquefied carbon dioxide emissions across the state uh, into South Dakota and then and bury them underground. That's the proposal. Uh, the, the ethanol plants will get billions of dollars in tax credits and the, the companies that make these pipelines will get billions of dollars from the federal government to reduce the carbon impact, it's called the carbon intensity score of these ethanol plants. Uh, and then our state government's gonna use eminent domain to take away property from private property owners to run these pipelines across their property. All of this is being fueled, no pun intended, all of this is being fueled by these federal tax credits. Uh, and, and this really gets to the root of the problem which I've given a lot of thought to this, and, and the root of the problem is federal taxation policy uh, is not primarily anymore about raising revenue for the federal government. It's about advancing social policy. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe federal taxation is a necessary evil, but then we should limit it as much as possible. But like these, these federal tax credits is no longer about raising revenue for the federal government is about advancing policies that do not support, do not have market support. But, yeah. but yeah, I like know, that last part. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just like that last part. You know that it's advancing policies that do not have market support. Why? Because nobody wants it. That's true. Absolutely. But you know. Um, Thomas, uh, you you have previously said that you you are, I mean, you believe in the rule of law, and yeah, I mean that that is one of the things that comes out of our our, our constitution, and which I tot I totally agree with. But you know, the constitution does not really define a very good relationship between the the, the state and its 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 residents. It doesn't really define that very 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 clearly. I mean, the ninth and tenth amendment do give us. The right, I mean, we preserve all the rights that we did not give up, you know, to, to be part of this experiment that we call the United States of America. But if the state are passing laws, passing laws, which, I mean, we as liberty-minded people disagree with, is that any way violates the, the Constitution in any way? It could, yes. I mean, th there is uh, state legislation that could interfere with constitutional prohibitions. Absolutely. Okay. We, you know, it, it, it's funny too, because, um, you know, with, with ethanol, sometimes it's sold as, you know, a cost saver or something like that, because it does, 
bring down the nominal price of gasoline, but like all government distortions, there's usually something hidden there. And, and part of the issue is you get a little less energy as well yeah. in that gasoline because the ethanol has about 30% less energy carrying capacity. But there's, uh, it's, it's funny. It's, there, there's, there's some environmental benefits to it. The fact that it has oxygen built into it, but it also causes problems with the machinery causes uh, corrosion and other things like that because it's an alcohol. So there's all sorts of issues that go into this that make it a complex issue, but government's uh, right there driving the train. <laughs> I'm not sure, uh, you know, Jason, I'm not sure about the net benefits. There are benefits, but the net benefits, I'm not sure that there are net benefits to, to, to the use of ethanol, quite frankly. I mean, the, I, the numbers are, are really fuzzy because, you know, the, the idea of these pipelines and the carbon capture is that it will reduce the emissions generated by these ethanol plants, which I think the science is there, that if you can capture it, liquefy it, and bury it underground, it reduces the amount of carbon being released into the atmosphere. But all of that is offset by the amount of carbon that's going to be released building the pipeline. Right. And I can't get good numbers on whether ultimately there's going to be more or less carbon emissions uh, depending on how much carbon is released, building these thousands of miles of pipeline across the state of Iowa, and even even carbon carbon capture in a, in 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 its uh, on its own, the carbon dioxide that they're capturing and, and pumping underground, there are no good real good studies about the long term benefits of that of how it's going to affect the water the water table and some other and other, other things um, from burying this thing. There's no good evidence of of, of studies about this. So the net benefits are really in question on this on this whole adventure. Yeah. And that gets to the eminent domain problem because uh, the Iowa Utilities Board under state statute has the authority to give private companies eminent domain uh, to build things like these pipelines. Uh, and uh, there are constitutional limits under both the U.S. Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, and under the Iowa Constitution, Article 1, Section 18, requires the use of eminent domain to have a public use. And the argument for this pipeline is the environmental benefits constitute a public use and therefore uh, make this constitutional. And I find that argument very weak. The connection between you know, the purported benefits to the environment uh, as a public use and the carbon capture of these ethanol plants, if that satisfies the Constitution, then any supposed benefit to the public would justify the taking of private property from one private owner to another by the government. And that is totally inimical to our frame of government. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because you can flip it with the pipeline that they wanted to bring down, a keystone, I guess, that they wanted to bring down. And uh, the idea that you know, you use public uh, or eminent domain for that as well uh, yeah. in some areas. Um, you know, it's it's certainly you can make the same argument that, hey, look, even if you're just using petroleum products, if you transfer it by pipeline, it's going to be more efficient and therefore it's better th for the environment than driving it by truck or some yeah. other way. So it just seems like there's an endless, uh, you know, argument there to get into eminent domain. Uh, uh, depending upon how you want to flip the numbers around, I guess. Um, but uh, speaking of fuzzy numbers, I wanted to get into another uh, uh, topic as well. And this this one kind of 
drives to uh, our COVID thinking and our medicine. Um, but there was a story in Iowa recently of a woman who was declared dead and she was sent to a funeral home. And then they determined that, hey, hold on, she's not dead yet. <laughs> and and I, I guess the, the reason I wanted to bring this story up, one, it was related to Iowa and we're talking about Iowa, but we have all these medical experts in all of these areas. And we were just talking about energy and the environment. And we have all these purported government experts on all these things. And yet when you really get down to it, you kind of wonder how expert they are when you have medical experts who can't even tell if a woman is alive or not. Yeah, you <laughs> unzip the body bag and she gasped for air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I did want to bring up a, a few other articles. Uh, they, there's recently been a lot of stepping back and rethinking about this. This one subject or uh, article from Nature, uh, you know, it talks, uh, you know, kind of it's more generous toward the 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 COVID lockdown cult in the sense that uh, they're actually trying to uh, uh, say that um, it's just some sort sort of more minor errors in the counting that they're admitting to. But uh, you know we've seen much much bigger errors. Um, you know there, there was an article in Newsweek where it said, "Look, it's time for the scientific community to say, hey, we were wrong about a lot of what we said on COVID." And um, uh, there's even lawsuits that are starting to happen now. I mean, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, you know, a prominent Stanford professor who was, you know, actually yeah. the perfect person for all this. He is a doctorate in uh, in both economics and uh, I, I believe it's epidemiology. Uh, yeah, he's know, a medical are, doctor. Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, yeah. it, it's, yeah. the, it's like the, the perfect combination of stuff to look at. Hey, we're going to try and follow this disease and the impact that it's going to have these choices on the economy. And yeah, he, they, they tried to silence him during yeah. all this. Uh, you know, the, the emails between Fauci and Collins saying, hey, we got to shut this guy down. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he wasn't going along with the narrative. So anyways, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to give you guys a chance to, uh, I guess, talk just a little bit about this and and you know kind of a, our some of our thoughts looking in the rearview mirror on some of this covid stuff well you know the 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 case that you brought up about the woman in iowa i mean i think that was just medical incompetence quite frankly um the woman <laughs> seriously i mean I know it, it was tragic right because the woman did end up she died even after she was taken from the funeral home she ended up she ended up dead i mean god rest her soul so that that was just Incompetence, okay, honestly, that's how it appeared to me. But this stuff about COVID, some of this stuff I think is quite criminal, quite frankly. I think the medical community became political. They really became political and they start making a bunch of pronouncements, especially the CDC and Fauci and company, and start making pronouncements that were not only wrong in retrospect, they were wrong at the time they made it and they knew it was. Like this case you just raised here about Jay Bajetari, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm -hmm. Fauci and company was doing everything to shut this man down and to shut down other people who were proposing, even shutting down people who were talking about hydro hydroxychloroquine, which seemed like a very effective therapy for COVID. And they didn't want people to be using it. Uh, all over the media, we have in these so-called experts, just like you're talking about, these experts telling us about the dangers of hydroxychloroquine, even though this is something 
That I've you mean the horse paste? Is that what you're talking about? Ivermectin. was. Oh, okay. That's ivermectin. Yeah. And they were all over the media telling us how dangerous these things are, how horrible these things are, when it was all a lie. And they knew it was a lie at the time. Some of this stuff is criminal. And some of these people should be prosecuted. I really hope they are. I mean, the case in Iowa, I mean, there's incompetence. I mean, maybe there, there might be some lawsuits about that and that kind of stuff. But I don't think there was criminal intent there. But in this stuff, in the COVID, there was clearly criminal intent involved in some of this. Seriously. Well, I wish you were right. But uh, in California, it's going to be criminal to um, to go uh, against uh, these uh, top-down central planning yes. uh, experts. Actually, I so think a, if Tim, anybody's going to be is, is has just given a stay on that or something, right. I'm not sure that some federal judge has jumped in, but I'm not sure if the whole thing yeah. is nuked yet or not. I'm not. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. go ahead. They'll keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, if anybody's going to be jailed in the future, in my hum humble opinion, it will be these uh, the people that are speaking that, that want to, you know, they're looking after their patients and have a difference of opinion. You know, oh gosh, got a difference of opinion. Can't have that. Better throw them in jail, right? Or whatever. You got well, they got to throw them in jail, but they're going to take away their license to practice medicine in California. Right, California, yes. pardon me. Well, 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 Thomas is a DA. I uh, all this talk of throwing people in jail must be <laughs> just yeah. getting on your, get, putting you on the edge of your seat. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't make those jokes. Uh, you know. My takeaway from this is that people need to stay in their lane. The, you know, the scientific community, community, the medical community, you know, I think there are scientists out there, there are doctors out there who are trying to find the truth, you know, gather proper data, reach the right conclusions. But that's a different responsibility than policymaking. And, and yes, just because there are ways to mitigate the spread of a disease, uh, and you can show scientifically with some degree of certainty that certain policy steps would mitigate the spread of a disease. That doesn't by itself mean those steps should be taken. Those have to be counterbalanced against other considerations. And that's the role of policymakers, not doctors or scientists. I mean, what we've experienced here in Iowa, when we shut down for the pandemic, DHS, Department of Human Services, stopped doing in-home visits where we knew there were problems in families and we shut down the schools and kids weren't going to school. And now as a prosecutor, I'm dealing with cases, and, and this isn't just me, this is statewide, the, the, across the state, you know, children were being physically or sexually abused during those periods of isolation. Uh, and, and now prosecutors in Iowa have to prosecute those cases because Social workers weren't going into the homes. Teachers weren't seeing these students on a daily basis. So you have to weigh those costs and the cost to mental health. We know that there was increased depression and anxiety among children. We know that gun violence increased. It can be traced to these pandemic policies. So, so it's the role of the policymaker to weigh the costs and benefits of various mitigation efforts. And, and too many people on the left said, no, we should just bow down to the medical community. Uh, and, and that exceeded their role and policymakers should not have deferred to, to medical people in the way they did. 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, the science just gives us sort of the framework to, and the metrics maybe to make our decisions with, but the decisions have to do with values and, and yes. the science doesn't really, you know, impact the, the values so much. Exactly right. So, and, and that's quite frankly why it's so sad that they did so much to shut down Jay Bhattacharya because that's one of those people who recognized that being both a doctorate in economics and <laughs> in the yeah. science. So, yeah, and that. Not to mention, they shut down the other two major uh, 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 founders of the Great Barrington Declaration. There's two other very notable positions yes. besides yes. Dr. Bhattacharya. And yes. so, uh, you know, it, it's not just him. It's it's a bunch of other people, too. Yeah, so. yeah pretty much anybody who was not with the narrative. But, Tim, this has us yeah. good and triggered. So you want to blast yeah. us through a quick uh, session you of know. Good Guys with Guns? <laughs> beginning to think if it wasn't for my special segment here i wouldn't have much to say uh well, james you know, couldn't get thanks. a word in edge well, we'll, but here we go yeah so um an armed mom and a security guard stop attempted child stealing in, in a des moines skywalk this is actually in uh, january of uh of this year so the skywalk may be nearly empty but the doors are open from morning to night everyone's welcome to be here says security guard will hunter this is a public space and i respect that hunter's job with per mar security is to keep the public space a peaceful one it's not easy we do have the shelter down here and you have a lot of mental illness in the homeless community he says and that's just a bad, sad fact last week two people walked repeatedly in front of the hubble tower apartments door Manager Shay Lindeberg, her young child at her side, finally opened it, asking if there was a problem. One of the people grabbed her child. A struggle ensued, but Lindbergh was armed. This is what I like about these kind of stories. Sergeant Paul Perizek of the Des Moines Police Department says this is one example of a lawfully possessed gun doing something well. I don't know if I agree with the gun doing anything well here. I don't like this focus on the gun. But anyway, the woman with the gun, the mother, the, the mama bear, yeah, she did a good job. It certainly looks like the big turning point here, the pivotal piece to keeping her child safe. Oh, really? Was the fact that she was lawfully armed with a handgun and she produced it and told them, let go of my kid. The man and woman uh, suddenly had other places to go. So they walked off and Lindbergh called Will Hunter. It took Shay about three sentences to describe her, the, the person that grabbed her kid. And I'm like, that's Lori. She's been around, hanging around, says Hunter. They take name, this security company uh, takes name of, of names of people uh, with problems on the sky, skywalk. So I'm gonna kind of paraphrase, uh, so the security guy followed the the couple, kept an eye on him, brought the police to arrest him, and uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, they they couldn't get uh, any. Uh, Shay Lindbergh did not want to respond to the questions that they had for for her. The the lady with the mama bear with the gun. I don't blame her. Best not to say much, you know, when you're pulling a gun out on someone. And so I don't blame her in that regard. But anyway. Here we are, once again, nobody got hurt, not a shot was fired. It's not gonna make the local news. This is not gonna be known anywhere, but right here at the Knuckleheads of Liberty. <laughs> what a plug, what a plug, Tim. 
<laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's always good to hear, you know, some people exercising their Second Amendment in a good way. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I can't uh, think of anything more. Anybody else have anything on that before we fi- get to the final uh, uh, point of the show, the uh, Knucklehead Noise Patrol? Okay. Okay. Well, let's jump into that because that's related to Iowa this time too. Uh, So in uh, Iowa, it looks like the DNC has told uh, uh, Iowa they're they're too white. So get to the back of the primary bus (laughs) because (laughs) uh, uh, they've decided that uh, they want to prioritize race. And this is literally what the DNC chairman said, Jamie Harrison. He said, this calendar uh, talking about the primary calendar change, this calendar does what is long overdue. It puts black voters at the front of the process in South Carolina. So now I, I don't have any particular horse in the race or anything else myself, but it, and and the idea of which state is in front seems kind of, you know, uh, arbitrary. But the bottom line is to be making the decision on race is just kind of uh, just seems to be totally going in the wrong direction. But what do you guys think? Why don't we let the, why don't we let the, the man from Iowa who whose state is most affected tell us first? Well, I suspect there's more than race going on, but that's how they're packaging it to try to appeal to a certain constituency whose votes they're trying to get. I mean, the Democrats absolutely botched the last caucus season. I mean, it was embarrassing for the state of Iowa, as I had the opportunity to tell some of you off air. If you know if they can't run a caucus, how can you expect them to run the country? Um, it, it was just just a fiasco. Uh, and, and so that's what I think provided the, the initial opportunity for the Democratic Party to rethink uh, where they should start. I think the caucus system is a great process. Unlike a primary system where you just go in and vote, in a caucus you actually have to meet with your neighbors and deliberate over who would be the best candidate for office. Uh, And then you break out into groups and you count heads. It's a very democratic, small d democratic process um, that encourages deliberation and civic engagement. So I think it's a a wonderful process, Uh, but the Democrats wanna move away from it and wanna move to a primary system uh, for kind of privileged primary states. Uh, for a number of reasons that may or may not be valid. But I, I think they're just packaging it as a race issue right now to appeal to certain segments of their coalition. Tim, Tim you want to go? No, oh, you're muted, Tim. Tim, you're muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Leon. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Thomas, I guess you are you are very um you're being very charitable to the Democrats. <laughs> but I am not, okay? Because they are nothing but a bunch of racists. That is what they are. So I'm sorry to say that, but that is what I've, I've said on this show before, and I'll say it again. I don't know if you remember in the last in the last um, uh, presidential cycle, Joe Biden, who was losing at the time, said we haven't yet heard from our most loyal uh, voters, our black voters, and he was talking about the voters in South Carolina, but the black voters in, in um in um in South Carolina. Listen to what he said, loyal, you know, listen to that, loyal, like we are loyal to a king. That's what it it sounds like. And these people have been trying since slavery to make black people into infants and dependent upon the Democratic Party. And these people are so disgusting that I want to vomit every time I hear about some of these policies that they are trying to institute. Now, look at this thing here. Look at this thing. 
They want to change their whole order of things. Well, they're a private organization. Fine, I have no problem with, 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 with that fact. But they want to change the whole order. For what? The order of the primaries. For what? Only because of race. And only to help that racist in the White House, Joe Biden. He have a long history of that. He really does. We could, we could spend all day talking about his racist rants and statements. But they're doing it only to satisfy him, to rig the system, to try and get him to be reelected at some point in time. God, I hope not. I hope he's... I hope he, I hope he resigns before we get we get to the end of his term. But Jesus Lord, these people are sick. That's what they are. So I'm not as charitable as you, Thomas. You can be. I God bless you for that. But I, I don't see them that way. And I ain't touching that with a ten foot pole. That's a good way to end. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they definitely we've seen a lot of focus on identity positive. But, you know, we've reached the end of our show. I'd like to thank Thomas so much for joining us. We always want to hear from people who are libertarians who are out there making a difference, out there running or achieving office so they can tell us their stories and maybe get you, uh, if you're watching, excited about trying to make a difference for liberty as well. Um, and it, we just interviewed Thomas as well on a uh, recent show. And uh, James, could you bring up the visual real quick? Uh, again, here's Thomas's webpage, so you can check him out. He is the Green County Attorney in Iowa, and he is uh, also has a book too that you can check out called uh, Plenty's Defense of Empire. So, uh, thanks again, Thomas, for joining us. And Thank um, you for having me. Until the next one, uh, stay That's free. Yes, thanks, Thomas. Thank yeah. you. Thomas, thanks a lot. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, always and forever. Thank you for listening to the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. Find us on Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, your favorite podcast network, and at knuckleheadsofliberty.com.